you enjoying this fall weather? I mean, that's so nice. It was a million degrees, and now it's not. It's perfect. Um, as we begin this morning, I'd like to tell you something. My son has reintroduced me to a lot of my childhood candy. I have a four-year-old who likes candy a lot, and we have to monitor the candy intake, okay? And one of his favorite pieces of candy, or at least there was, he went through a season where he wanted to eat everything that was sour in the world. And the funny thing about it, he would get it, and then taste it, and then discard it immediately. Like, Dad and Mom, eat it. It's too sour. Like, we told you it said, like, atomic sour. Why? And one of the candies that he reintroduced to us was the Warhead. I don't know if you remember these things. The atomic warhead. Oh, I heard it. (laughs) Testify, brother. All right. You got the... (laughs) Got the atomic warhead, comes this little package, and you put that in your mouth, and it is intense, angry, sour, okay? And why do you hold on through that? Because at the end of it is something sweet that you enjoy. I, I don't know why we ate these as a kid except for to show that we could do it. But you know that candy, after the sour, it tasted so good. I'm going to bring that up because... We have been looking at the book of Job. This is our fourth week in our series in the book of Job. And we have talked about Job being broken and where God is in that. And that God is sovereign in these things and he is working in us in these times. And that he is in control even in in these times. And so we looked at the brokenness. And we've talked about this this last week we looked at what does it look like to be between the, the point where we've been broken and where we've been mended. Because most of this book takes place between where Job is broken and where Job is mended. Chapter 3 through basically chapter 39 of the book is Job arguing with people about his problems and what has befallen him. And he's a broken man using broken pottery to clean his wounds, to scratch his wounds, and he is at the end of his rope. And I want you to know something. There is a tendency, and we're going to see this. We're going to be in Job 19 today. We're going to see this. There is this danger. In fact, there's two major dangers I want. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, by the way. Two major dangers. I'm sorry. There are two dangers that we have to watch for when we are in between that period of being broken and God mending us. And it's this. First off, this is what we talked about last week. You can waste your sufferings. See, here's the good news. For those of us who are in Christ, our suffering is not judgment. Because you know why? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is discipline, and there's him working in us to make us more like him. We've seen that in the book of James. Count all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And it goes on and on and on. So our faith, here's what we got. Here's the good news. We don't receive judgment when trial comes. We are either receiving discipline, or he's maturing us, or he's just showing his greatness and glory in us at this time. So don't waste it. Don't waste this time to examine the work of God in your life, to examine God's transformation in your life, to examine to see if there's any sin in your life. Don't waste this time of suffering. But here's the other thing that can happen. You could become bitter, sour. You could be like the warhead, but without the sweetness coming. 
You can be, you've met bitter, sour people that hate life, hate other people. Their hearts are cold to other people. Their hearts are cold to life. Their hearts are cold to the things of God. And it's all because of the bad things that have happened in their lives previously. And this bitterness, and it's understandable to a certain extent because what you've experienced is difficult. And it's painful, and it's probably more painful than, than you could even tell me. But I want you to know this, that bitterness is something Job struggled with, and his bitterness is not something that overtook Job by God's grace. Because if you're bitter, you will miss the point of your sufferings that God is working in you. And so I want to just caution us all today, this danger of us becoming bitter. And who are the two people that we can become most bitter with? We can become bitter with other people, especially people who try to help us but end up being hurtful and sometimes hateful. And we can become bitter at God. And Job, in Job chapter 19, I want to walk us through this. I want you to see that he is struggling with bitterness because his friends are punks, okay? That's a theological term, punks. Because they're saying, your suffering is because of your sin. And we know that's not the case, and Job is trying to argue back with him. So we get to Job 19, and this back and forth with his first, the first of his three friends. There's a back and forth that happens. In Job 19, if you were going to begin in verse 1 and just kind of walk through this for a second to show you that Job is teetering on the edge of bitterness. And so we see verse 1. Then Job answered and he said, and he's talking to his friends, How long will you torment me and break me into pieces with your words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Now, don't go back and try to count the ten times. This is just a, it's kind of like when you say, you've done this to me a hundred times. You know you're not keeping track of a hundred times. What are you saying? You've done it a lot, okay? So he's talking to these friends. He says, why are you breaking me down with all these words? And then he says, these ten times you have cast reproach on me, and are you not ashamed to wrong me? I mean, you think about it. This is a broken man. He's gaunt. He's covered with sores. He's lost everything. He's in sackcloth and ashes. And these guys are going, where's your sin, Job? And he's like, are you going to crush me some more, guys? Doesn't I look crushed enough? And then he goes in verse 4, and he says, and even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. He opens up, Job opens himself up to the fact that, hey, maybe I did sin. But maybe it's, it's I didn't realize I had. And then he goes on in verse 5, If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed me about his net. He said, look, even if you're right, know this, that God has closed in around me. Now Job here, in his torment and in his anger, because his friends are saying, Job, what are you doing wrong? Job, why, are you, why is this happening? Why won't you repent, Job? What's your sin? He's saying, I haven't done anything that I know about. And even if I did, does it merit this torment? And I just want you, he, Job starts, remember he didn't sin in the way he responded in chapters one and chapter two, but he has things to repent of at the end of the book. We know this, that Job was teetering on the edge because of his brokenness. He was angry with his friends, and rightfully so, but also he begins to think and question the character and nature of God because he starts to say, God is coming against me, like tying me in. As verse 6 says, know then that God has put me in the wrong. 
God has, God has given me trouble and closed his nets about me. He thinks that God is the one who is coming in and trying to crush him and that God is doing this to crush him. But we know that God is allowing Job to go through this so that he would be shown to be great in Job's life. So Job at this point, and this happens to us, when we go through hard things, don't we start to question? And don't we start to question the character and nature of God? That's why we have to continue to understand and see through eyes that have been opened by the revelation of Scripture that God is at work in us, and he has not, he's not working for our bad, but he's working for our good. But when we are in that time where it hurts so bad, we are teetering on that edge of bitterness and sin. And it goes on, verse 7. He says, Behold, I cry out violence. This is wrong. But I am not, I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. God, where is my justice? He cries. Then he goes, he has walled up. Now he goes, he goes from talking to his friends, and now it's a transition. Now he's talking to God. This happens with Job. He starts talking to his friends, and then he goes and he busts in to talking to God. And sometimes you don't even know when it's coming which fits us in, in our time. Don't, can't you see the anguish? How many times in anguish can you put together a clear, cogent argument, right? Right? What is it? No, you're just a stupid head, okay? I don't like that. I mean, that, when you get to that point of emotion and you can just see the rawness and the realness that is expressed by Job here, and he says, he, talking about God, has walled up my way. He has blocked off my path so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my path. God has brought this here. In verse 9, he says, he has, stripped me from, he has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. See, remember, Job's missing the point. Actually, God is using Job to glorify himself. So Job is getting a crown out of all this, but he's thinking God has taken away his crown. His perception is skewed, and he's teetering on the edge of bitterness. And he goes on. And he says in verse 10, he breaks me down on every side and I'm going, I am gone and my hope is pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come together. And so there's this picture here that God is surrounding him with these troops that are trying. He's like a besieged city in verse 12. It says his troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. You think about this. When a siege would happen, most of the cities at this time period had giant walls against them. And so what he envisions here is not a city that's being attacked, but it's a tent. There was a time that Amy and I went camping, and we, were, we thought it would be great. We were newly married, and it was this campground that was almost completely abandoned. And we thought, this is going to be fantastic until we realized that it was going to get nighttime and that there was a hunting camp nearby, and we heard guns and dogs and craziness. I think they were hunting raccoons, and it was going wild and crazy around us all night long, and we were thinking, horror movie. So we barely slept the first night. The second night, we had paid for three nights, or we'd have been gone, okay? Night two, I said, let's go to Walmart and get some stuff. So we protect ourselves. I got a padlock for a suitcase. Am I lying? This is stupid. And I put it on the zipper on the inside so nobody could get in. It's a tent. 
It's made of visqueen or whatever. It's a tarp. That's the idea. He said, these, these, these warring armies are around and God has sent. And they have these siege ramps that would be like you're attacking a big fortress. And I'm here not in a walled city, but in a tent. He's feeling the great anguish of his sorrow. And it is starting to skew his perception. And you just can hear his heart hardening. In verse 13, he goes on. He says, He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me he wholly estranged from me. So now he goes from talking about God, and now he mentions to how God has he's, he's encamped. In, in and remember, Job is, Job is starting to lose sight here. What we have is he moves from talking about God doing these things to how God, has, when in, in doing these things, has affected his relationships with other people. Verse 13, he says this, He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. goes on, My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. It's very interesting to think about this. We don't have any of Job's extended family come to see him. Who comes to see him in his great plight? It's these three friends who now he is at arms with in this fight, and he is realizing that his relatives have failed him and his close friends have forgotten him. He goes on to say in verse 15, The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. He is the, the people in his house and the people he employs, they're not listening to him, and they don't care for him. In verse 16 it says, I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. He's employing this servant. Remember, he did lose a lot of servants, but he didn't lose them all when calamity hit his house. But these, it's like telling your employee to go do something for you, and they're like, yeah, forget you. That's not, that's not good. And he said, please have mercy on me. Do something. He feels utterly abandoned. And he goes on, and he says this. He goes, I call, I, verse 17, my breath is strange to my wife. And I am a stench to the children of my own mother. I, I don't think that Job's breath was actually bad because he says it was a stench to his wife because his wife did not leave him because he had halitosis, okay? That he, had, he needed some Listerine. Why did she leave him? Well, first off, she was under immense anguish because she lost everything too. I, we forget that sometimes. Secondly, she told Job to curse God and die. She blamed Job. And so she's out. So he's, his relatives have abandoned him. His servants who he's hired have abandoned him. His wife has abandoned him. And in fact, he says it like this. She's like She finds me to be an offensive stench. That is so much worse sounding than she's out of here. <laughs> she left me. Like She thinks I smell and I repulse her. Ugh. And then he goes on, and he says, he says he's even a stench to the children of his mother's womb. He's a stench to his brothers and his sisters, who we don't see, but apparently they're there. Or in the picture, they exist. 18, it says, even though young children despise me, when I rise, they talk against me. So people, young children who are supposed to respect their elders, when Job gets up and walks, they're like, <laughs> look at that guy. 
And then it goes on, and it says, all my intimate friends, and this is directly, remember, he's talking to those three friends who he's in contact with. And then he says this, all of my intimate friends abhor me. Now, these, the people who are talking to him, his three friends, I think they feel like they're doing the right thing. They feel like that Job has offended God and that he needs to turn from his sins. But that's not the case, and Job feels anger towards them, and he feels hated, and he feels persecuted, and, and he says, all my intimate friends, they abhor me, and those whom I've loved have turned against me. So he's saying, you have turned against me. You have, you've tried to do good. You've hurt me. And these people are doing this, and they are obviously appearing, uh, they're, they're appealing to God's character to do so. So you would say these people that, that these three guys who are Job's friends who are coming against him, they know about God. They do care about Job, but they are just being hurtful and hateful because they do not see what's going on. And in fact, there'll be another young gun who shows up at the end named Eliphaz. And after all the talking is over, this young gun, Eliphaz, and we have that pull up, if you can pull that up for me, guys. In Job 32, this guy shows up. So there's this argument that goes on until chapter 32. And then in Job 32, here's what happens. So these three men, they cease to answer Job. The conversation ends, and, and Job answers because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, that's hard, that's fun to say, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barachel, the, the Buzite, answered and said, and then he goes on this tirade that lasts up until God speaks in chapter 39. And I want you to get this idea. The people who are speaking to Job and hurting him are seemingly friends and they are trying to honor God and get Job to repent. However, they have lost love, compassion, and really, they don't understand as much as they think they do. Job is in danger of becoming bitter, not because of people doing something to him, not or directly, his, his, his suffering is not a result of people doing something, it's a res his hurting now is, is God, God allowed Satan to come and hurt him, but now he is his suffering is being exacerbated, being made worse by the fact that he's around a bunch of people who are not showing compassion, who are at best being hurtful and unintentionally hurtful, but at worst are being hateful to him. Have you been in that situation before? Where it's insult to injury. You're already suffering, and you come home, and you're expecting a, a sympathetic ear or a kind word, and you get not that. Have you ever been guilty of doing that? I have as a husband. 
Matt, I had a really bad day. Amy comes in, and I would be like telling her things she should do to fix that bad day. That always helps. There is a real danger because here's what's happened. The incidence of brokenness has happened. Job is now dealing with the aftermath before God will bring the mending. And he is in danger of becoming bitterness towards people who are trying to be helpful but are actually hurtful and at worst hateful. And sadly, sometimes that happens in the church. That people who are wounded and sore and beaten down because of life and because of sin and because of so many different things, when they wander into a church, all they receive is not grace, but they receive hurtful comments that may be true, but truth must be delivered in love. And how often has that happened to us that we missed it? Now, there's one thing you can do. We can all go, amen, that does happen, brother. Oh, yeah. And you could think for a second that this will be that place where it won't happen to you. You won't get hurt when you're hurting. Sadly, this place is full of people who love Jesus but are not perfect. You guys know that, right? I am the chief of that, okay, of loving Jesus but not being perfect. And there may be times when we hurt each other. So we can go from one place to another and try to not get hurt and try to, try to, say, you know, try to you know, blame other people for our hurt and, and how it happened and become bitter at the church and the things of God. We could go there. We could say that, right, because a lot of us have you know, good feelings about this place. We could say, this is not that place. It won't happen here. It might. I pray it won't, but it might. So our plan is, this is not a pat ourselves on the back and get our arms sore from that. What this is today is to show you this. When sorrow happens, there will be hurtful and hateful people, and sometimes they don't even mean to be both. You can't control them. But you must endure them in faith and love your God and try to love and forgive so that bitterness will not be rooted in your heart and make you miss all the blessings that can be available through fellowship and communion and for people who will speak the truth and love to you. Do you remember me tell, telling you a story of this guy named Horatio Spafford? He's a guy who wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. We sang part of that song or a piece of it just a few moments ago. This is a picture of him. And if you remember the story about the song, he actually wrote the song at the site of the, of the shipwreck where he lost his four young daughters, the oldest of which was 11, the youngest of which was two. There was a shipwreck on the way as they were leaving from New York going to Europe. There was a shipwreck that happened. His wife survived, and all four of his young daughters perished. And as he was going over to meet his wife in Europe from the United States. As they were passing, the ship's captain called Horatio to the front and said, this is the site where your daughters perished. And right there, he wrote all of the words to the hymn, it is well with my soul. And if you ever heard the hymn, wow, it is just fantastic. And he just talks about the fact that whatever Jesus brings his way, it is well 
Now, we get that story and we hear it, but there's actually more to the story. See, here's what happens. It's not the happy ending at first that you would think it would be. He goes and he meets his wife, and they have three more kids, two girls and a boy. Well, sadly, as they make it back to Chicago, after all of dealing with the death of the four little girls, as they make it back to Chicago, their little boy, who's three at the time, gets scarlet fever and dies. That's two boys they lose. One before, one before they had the shipwreck, and now afterwards they lost another boy to scarlet fever. Do you know what happens? Their church rallies around them. No, it actually doesn't happen this time. Here's what happens. Their church rallies around them to judge them and said, obviously, apparently this church had never read the book of Job, by the way, but this church rallies around and says, because of all this calamity that is befalling you and your family, Horatio, it is obvious that you have some secret sin. And they exercised church discipline and kicked him out of the church. This is not the feel-good part, okay? Do you know what he does? He gives up and he never goes back to church, and he doesn't care about the things of God anymore. No. You know what he does? He moves to Jerusalem, of all places. At this point, it's not Israel. It's still very much Palestinian control. This is in the, um, this is in the late 1800s. And he goes, <laughs> he goes over to Jerusalem, and he sets up a Christian mission there, it's a little bit weird, okay, because they try to live like first century Christians, and, and, and sometimes that got, got a little odd because they had to sell everything, and they moved into a, a colony together. They called it American Colony. Nothing weird went on sinfully, but they, I mean, listen, as much bad stuff has happened in his life, he's due a little weird, right? He can handle a little weird. But so he doesn't, the point is not he was a little bit weird, but the point is this, he kept on with his ministry that God had called him to, and he lived biblically is what people said. And not only that, he went around and, and established healthcare, um, uh, healthcare organizations to help people in that area in Jerusalem, both Muslim and Jew and Christian, and he spread the fame and glory of God all around. Now, if there was a man who had a, had a reason to be bitter, you think it would have been him. But no, he did not let that bitterness, let that hurt become a cancer in his life that sapped him of all spiritual life and joy. No, what he did was he trusted God, and he kept walking by faith, and he did not let the evil and the hateful define or hurt him. Did not make, let them become bitter. So what did he do? In between the time when you've been broken and God heals you, you might encounter hurtful people. Sadly, some of those people might be believers. Sadly, some of them might be hurtful unintentionally, and sadly, even more sadly, some of them might be hateful to you intentionally. But that is not an excuse for becoming a bitter, hard-hearted person. Because all that does is it robs you of the joy that will eventually come back into your life. What we have here, Job talks about how his intimate friends abhor me in verse 19 of Job 19. And then he goes on and says, My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. 
And then he says this to my friends. And this is Job 19.21. He says this, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, oh you my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? He says, guys, give me a break. Now, here's what happens. Let's go to the end of the book for a second, because I want to show you something. Job is teetering on the edge of bitterness towards people, hurtful and hateful people. But at the end of the book, God speaks, and then at the very end, God actually addresses Job's friends. This is a big one. You know this. It is not your job to punish other people and to discipline them unless they're your kids. It is not your job. It is God's. And until you learn that, you will be bitter and angry at everybody. I have a t-shirt because I've been through it. In Job 42, 7, after, this is after, after the conversation after God appears to Job in a whirlwind, Job 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the, the Temanite, one of the three, my anger burns against you. You don't want God to say my anger burns against you, okay? You might, want to t- you might tick off somebody at the grocery store, but you don't want to tick off God. He says, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. And I can almost imagine them going, what? We were trying to do what you want, uh, you know? My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. What? What? You can almost hear it like, uh, uh." verse 8. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up burnt offerings for yourself. And my servant Job shall pray for you. Get this, offer sacrifices, and then go ask Job to pray for you. They would rather eat toenail clippings for years. I don't know. They would rather do something bad than have this happen. Can you imagine this? This is like eating crow to a huge level. They spent... 30 chapters telling him he was wrong, and God said, no, 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 no. Go, he's going to pray for you because you need somebody to intercede. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what was right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Then I want you to get down to verse 10 here. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. But before that happens, before the mending, I want you to get this. When he had prayed for his friends. He prayed for his friends and then was restored. The bitterness was taken away. He could not harbor it any longer. That was part and parcel to his healing and restoration. And I want you to know something. Whatever you've been through, maybe you have been through the awful, and it's probably more than I can bear and understand. 
And maybe you have been hurt by people in those times, and it is more than you can understand, and it is, it's more than you can really relate to me. And you've been hurt, and you've been wounded, and you've been hurt by even church people. You've been hurt in the church. You've been hurt in these different areas. I want you to get this. You will never be fully restored until you learn to forgive and give it to Jesus. And that is hard. I went through a really tough period in church life about three years ago now. And it was tough sledding at the church I was at. We had to do some tough things. We had to put ourselves on the line several times. And our hearts were at the point where we were bitter. When we think about church, we think about body slamming somebody. Okay? We would think about church. We would think about confrontation. We would think about church. We would think about we have to get ourselves amped up to walk in that place because it was so hurtful. And the Lord told, the Lord was very, I think it was, it, you know, I didn't hear a voice, but it just was clear in our spirit that we needed to step away from, from that particular church at the time and, and go and do some ministry outside of that church. And it was God's will, but it took a huge step of faith for us. And then we did it with trembling and great Great trembling, okay? <laughs> White knuckle trembling. But we did it. We did. We took the leap in faith. And we still had some things. We had friends that were calling us that, were in, that had some troubles in their churches. And, and I just had a bitter, hateful tone to when I would talk. I, didn't, I, I even realized it. When I would talk about church, I would just be like, meh, meh, I, mean, I, would, I would try to discourage people and I would be snippy and bitey. And I would, bitey, I don't know, I would bite at people. And I, I was hard. The Lord used a year of me going. It was funny. What he did was instead of, instead of keeping me in one church, he sent me, I think we were in 25 different churches in that year. So you don't like church? Okay, go to 25 different ones of all shapes, sizes, creeds, dress codes, everything. We went to one. I preached at ones, some that had eight people in them. Some that did, had way more than that. It was a weird place to be in your life. But what happened was God began to heal the bitterness that was in my heart. And then one day you guys called me. But at the same time you guys called me, another church in my hometown called me. I, lo I love this now, but I was thinking, I'm from Panama City, Florida. Like, this is awesome. I love here, but like, beach, okay? <laughs> Ching, okay? Holy. Look, so we go to this interview, and <laughs> we sit, I sit down. She's supposed to join me a couple hours later. I sit in this interview, and have you ever been? You were, I was wondering, like, did you call me? Or did I call you? How does this work? Because they were mad, and it got combative, and they were, they were like coming at me like, well, why do you believe this? Why do you? And I was like, what is going on? Is this a job interview or like an inquisition? Is there a stakeout back you're going to burn me next to? And by the time, and it, and it got to this place where it was awkward, and I was defending myself, but I noticed something. I wasn't angry. I didn't have that tingle in the back of my head that says Murder. And then Amy walked into the most tense, weird meeting of all time, and she's like, hey, are we supposed to eat? And I said, yeah. She has no idea, but she's picking up the vibe of funk, okay? There's something wrong. So we're, we go, and we eat, and there's like, it's, nobody is talking. 
except for Amy and I were trying to start conversations and getting one-word answers. Like, did you guys want me to come here? What is happening? Then we went back into the meeting, and it got worse. (laughs) It's a a three-and-a-half-hour battle at the end of which was like, all right, we'll see you when you preach tomorrow. I was like, okay. Walked out of that place, and Amy's like, are you okay? Because she thought, because of all the things I've been through and how my heart had been so snappy and bitter, she was like, wow, you didn't yell at anybody. (laughs) Like, you kept that together for three hours? You argue with those people for three hours? And I said, well, I didn't really argue. And at that point, I actually stopped the car. And I looked up, and I said, you healed me. I am not bitter anymore. Forgiveness had reigned. It was the work of Jesus. I mean, I, it would have been so weird, but I almost got out of the car and started dancing next to it. I was like, I have been delivered from this hate in my heart. I don't have it anymore, and it was not my doing. It was his, but that is part of the restoration. Don't think that you can be okay and still carry around bitterness towards other people. I'm not saying it'll go away overnight. I'm not saying you can do it on your own, but I'm saying it has to go away. And we can't foster that here. So I want you to know this. When you're walking between the broken and the mended, don't become bitter at other people. And don't become bitter towards God. Do you get how dark? We're going back to Job 19. Beginning in verse 23. Remember, Job is just talking about how God's hemmed him in. God has put all, he's, he's t- make it, made all these enemies come against him. His friends have betrayed him. And then all of a sudden, light breaks in to the darkest point. Job 19, verse 23. He says, oh, that my words were written. <laughs> Funny enough, they are. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. He is actually asking probably for a tombstone. You've been, you've been to a graveyard before? You've seen on a tombstone? Most of the time it's got the name, the years. Sometimes it'll have an inscription. And that is the inscription that you want people to remember the deceased by. Maybe it's a Bible verse. Um, I've been to, uh, the cem- I think it's Cave Hill Cemetery in Louisville, Kentucky. That's where the, like, KFC, the colonel, he's buried there, okay? And it's got a bust of his head, and people leave Kentucky Fried Chicken packets of, like, sauce there. It's pretty cool, all right? And that's who he's known for chicken, I guess, all right? <laughs> he's the colonel. And so he's right in that cemetery. It was, it, you think about it, he's saying here, I want this situation to be inscribed on a stone because he I, I think he's under the impression that he is not going to live long enough for him to him to be vindicated so he says write this down put up a tombstone that says all this stuff and then like light in a dark in the darkest moment there is a switch that happens a change this is probably one of the most significant passages in the whole book of Job, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. 
And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. We went to a cave this year. We went, uh, we, I, I got this thing where I like to go to caves, um, not just random caves, but, you know, like ones that you could, like tourists can go into. And we went to one. I was preaching a camp in Alabama, and we went to this cave. And I'm just, just always, it's so great when you're underneath there, and they turn the lights out, and there's no light. And it was the first time we got to take Judson in one of those caves. And he grabbed onto all of us. He wrapped his legs around his Nana and his arms around me and his mom. And he was like, <gasps> and he could not see a thing. And they talked about in this, at this particular cave, there was an electrician that went down there who put a lot of the lighting in, because they did have lighting, and that's what they turned off, who put the lighting in. He actually dropped his flashlight, and it went down three or four stories into the ground, and they had to find him 18 hours later, and he sat there in the dark for 18 hours. That would have been awful. So I want you to think about that darkness, and all of a sudden one light bulb, a candle broke through. How much joy that man must have felt when light was shown in the situation. Job is saying, darkness is all around me. I've been broken. Everybody's abandoned me. God is against me. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in this complete pitch black, comes a statement of faith. And he says, I know, I'm confident that my Redeemer lives, and he at last shall stand upon the earth. The word Redeemer in the Hebrew is called is Goel, and it, mean, it means a kinsman Redeemer, and it means somebody who was part of your family that if anybody got in trouble, like for example, you got into a bunch of debt and had to be sold into slavery, or you lost the family farm because you had gotten in so much debt, the kinsman Redeemer, or the Goel, he would go around, and his job, his responsibility was to buy you back out of your trouble. In the Psalms, this word gets applied, in the wisdom literature, it gets applied to God, who is the redeemer of Israel, the one who buys Israel back. In Egypt, he's the one who bought them out of slavery. He's the redeemer. And so Job, he is feeling crushed. He's feeling like God has set up against him. And then all of a sudden, out of this, he fights faithlessness with hope faithlessness with faith, hopelessness with hope. He preaches this news that he knows, that he knows that he will have a redeemer. He's obviously talking about God. He says, I know that my redeemer lives and that he will stand upon the earth. And then he says this, and after Remember, he's wanting, go back in verses 23 and 24, look, he wants a gravestone just because he thinks he's going to die before he gets vindicated. And then in verse 26, he says, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, which means after I die and become worm food, yet in my flesh I shall see God. There's a lot of difficulties here in the Hebrew, but the major idea is this. He is confident that God will redeem him out of his trouble, and he will stand before God in his flesh, and he will see God. He believes in somewhat of a resurrection, that his death will not be the end, that one day he will see God in the flesh, and God will redeem him. I want you to know something. 
Job, remember, Job only can see this much. He never knows what's going on in the beginning of the book. He never sees the fact that Satan was the one, Satan is the one who afflicted him, and the reason that God allowed Satan to afflict him was because he was glorif- God was glorifying himself in Job. So he doesn't see that. Also, Job does not see this Redeemer who's coming because Job would be astounded that his prophecy here really refers to the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who did stand on the earth, who was God in the flesh, who did come, and he did redeem, and so that every person, no matter our troubles and no matter if we die, if we believe in him, we shall live and we will see God, and all of this pain and this, this, this light momentary affliction compared, when compared to eternity will be seen as what it is, God working in us for our good and for his glory. So folks, you can become bitter at other people, but that will will hinder you from restoration. And if you become bitter at God, you will miss what he is doing in your life. And you might, well, how do you do this? Because there are dark nights when things fall apart. How? You fight faithlessness with faith. And you fight hopelessness with hope. Is this hope just positive thinking? For crying out loud, no. Positive thinking is worth nothing. The promises and truth of God is worth everything. You realize how ridiculous positive thinking is. It will not change. I mean, I'm not telling you you should be pessimists, okay? But I want you to know something. Positive thinking will not change your circumstances. But biblical thinking will give you hope, like real hope. Positive thinking means I'm just happy that these, are hap- these things are happening to me. Hope says, my, this is awful, but God's got a plan and a promise. Do you see the difference? We are not called to be positive thinking, big buffoon smiles in the face of pain. We're not supposed to talk sweet all the time and say everything's going to be fine. No. Job was on the brink, people. He was on the brink. So what does he use to fight? It wasn't like, I need to be more positive and think more positively. No. My Redeemer lives. It's It's a relentless hope rooted in a God who can redeem. And you got to fight it. You got to fight that hopelessness when it sinks in. You got to you got to wrestle it to the ground. You got to hit it with a chair. You got to go into the kitchen, grab a knife, and you stab hopelessness in the heart with the promises of God. You got to go hard after your hopelessness and your bitterness and know this that your redeemer lives. That even if you die, even if you perish here, you will not suffer ultimate death, but you will be raised on the last day. And let hope infiltrate your darkness. We are not positive thinking, fake smile wearing ninnies. We are warriors clad in the armor of God, attacking the gates of hell, being completely crushed but not destroyed, 
because we have a redeemer who conquered and sin can't touch us. Death is only momentary and there is life and faith. So you fight it. You don't give up. You don't let bitterness win against other people or God. You go and you wrestle it to the mat and you strangle that puppy in the name of Jesus because our Redeemer lives and he will stand on the earth again. He is coming, so don't lose heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come and we thank you for your promises and your goodness to us. We thank you that you work even on our sufferings. That you call us to endure hateful and hurtful people so we don't become bitter so that we can receive your blessings later and not miss them. And God, we come and we thank you that in the darkest of nights and in the darkest of places there is hope and our hope is based on the fact that you redeem, that you buy us back from our sin and brokenness and trouble. So God, help my brothers and sisters and myself fight the fight of faith. And God, as we proclaim your death and resurrection through the communion, we pray, God, that it would be our triumphant symbol saying that you win. You have overcome. Death is dead. Its sting is, is gone. We have life in Christ. God, let us continue in communion with that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.